not a typo. We're not stuck with dyslexia in the office or something. But the title is Americus Contra Mundum. And let me go ahead and explain that a little bit. So back in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea was convened, and they were working through a, a theological issue of the nature of Christ. And so on one side, you had this guy, Arius, that was saying, you know, that Jesus was a created being, and he was different and separate from God the Father. On the other side, you had this gentleman named Athanasius. And Athanasius said, no, Scripture says that they're all one person, right? The, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all of one essence, of one person. And so they argued, and Athanasius wins at the Council of Nicaea. I mean, he should. It's how the Bible describes God. And so that goes out as a standard position. And you'd think the matter would be settled. I mean, it's in Scripture. They have the entire council about it. But it doesn't end there. It goes on. They, they end up for the rest of Athanasius' life, he's going to be fighting this issue. And there are points where everybody turns against him. The, uh, all the way from the, the emperor to all the religious leaders, he gets sent out into the wilderness by himself, thrown out of his church. And so we remember Athanasius by a, a Latin phrase, which was Athanasius contra mundum, which is Athanasius against the world. Because there are times where, as he held to biblical fidelity, he was fighting against, it seemingly, the entire world. So, borrowing from that idea, we have Americus Contra Mundum, which kind of helps us understand what's going to be happening in Joshua chapter 2. And in Joshua chapter 2, we're going to see this woman, Rahab, who's going to face off against the entire world. And she has to make a decision, am I going to side with the world and its beliefs and what it puts forward in its system? Or am I going to stand against that on my own? And so Americus Contramundum is a harlot against the world. Because that's the position that Rahab is going to find herself in. Now, before we jump into the text and start working through it, let me provide you with a few cautions. Because this is one of those biblical passages where people start to study it, go into it, and they trip and stumble on a few uh, issues. They run into a few problems. We would say that these things are red herrings. You've got to be aware of. And a red herring, that term comes from, they used to train Fortunately, I've got one of those George Whitfield voices where I could probably do without it if I had to. <laughs> so a red herring comes from they used to train dogs, and the dogs would have a scent of what an, whatever animal they were chasing. And to try and train them not to lose the scent of what they were chasing, they would drag these fishes, these red herrings across the path to try and distract the dog, you know, make the dog go off and chase the fish. And so today, we have something that we're chasing. Whenever you study Scripture, there's something that you're chasing. It's not, what do I think this passage means to me? That's not what you're trying to study Scripture for, right? Scripture, you're trying to study 
what did the author intend when he wrote this passage? Because there's no scripture that's just written down just to give you some information or so that you can come up with your own lesson for what it means to you, but rather the author has something that he is trying to teach. There's a theological truth that he's trying to pass on that should have an effect on your life to change your life, to change your behavior, to change your thinking. So the author of Joshua chapter 2, and when I say author, you know, I'm speaking of both the human author that wrote it down, Joshua, and the Holy Spirit who was inspiring Joshua. Both of them had their intention working together to write this passage to teach us something. So what happens is we start to study Joshua chapter 2, and a couple of red herrings pop up. One of those is we start to argue about the morality of Rahab's profession. I mean, she was a harlot. Scripture speaks plenty about sexual sin, what's appropriate, uh, you know, outside of marriage. But this is not one of those passages that's trying to, to instruct you on what's appropriate. The Bible doesn't even recognize, yeah, she was a harlot, and it doesn't say anything negative about her in that sense. It just states the fact. We understand that it's not appropriate, so we don't want to be dragged down into the morality of her profession. The other is, we don't want to get stuck on the morality of her lie, because she's going to lie. She's going to say, come, the, the city people are going to come to her and say, did you hire, where are the people at? Did they come see you? And she's going to say, I don't know where they're at, they left. And she's going to lie to them. And so people will start to debate the morality of lying. Was lying really a sin? Is there times when it's appropriate to lie? The author of this passage, and in fact the author of the Bible, doesn't look at this as some sort of a justification for lying, or as a condemnation of lying, or any sort of instruction from this passage of Scripture. So don't get tripped up on those. If you want to talk about lying, you can go to other places in Scripture that say you shouldn't lie. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. So then, if those aren't what we're trying to learn, what did the author intend? What was his point in writing Joshua chapter 2? Was it just so we knew what happened, how they came into the land? Or was there an intention and a point for Israel that it was written? And then likewise, as it comes forward in history, for us. So we can really see this passage is kind of broken up into three sections. And in Hebrew, they do this often. We'll do like a, a, a fable or something. You know, you think of like Aesop's fables. And they'll tell the story and the punchline is always at the very end of the story, right? And then that's where you get the twist or the morality or the, the lesson that you're supposed to learn comes at the very end. The, the Hebrew writers did things a little bit different. They didn't do it that way. They almost built Scripture or built their writings like a sandwich where they would start with something, then they would give you the key point, everything that's important kind of in the middle, and then kind of a conclusion or close it out at the end. And so often within in Hebrew and in the biblical writing, what's in that center section is what's key and what's important. And we're going to see that today because we could break this up and we could say it starts out with the arrival of the spies and it concludes with the departure of the spies. But in the middle is this confession 
And this confession takes center stage and is the key point. It's what the author wants you to see, wants you to focus in on. And so that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time is in that confession section of verses 8 through 14. But let's start at the beginning of Joshua chapter 2. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. All right, if you know anything about the history of Israel, this has to give you pause for a second. Quick recap, God brings them out of slavery in Egypt, says we're going to go take the promised land, sets them up at Sinai, gives them the law. They go to the promised land. We're going to conquer it. What do they do? They send spies into the land. The spies come back and say, man, there's no way we could take this land. The people are too big. It's, it's overwhelming. Only two spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, God said we're going to do this. We can do this. But the people don't listen to them. And so then what happens? God sends them into the wilderness, says, everybody from this generation is going to wander. You're not going to enter into the promised land until all of you are dead, and then the new generation will go into the land. Well, we're at that new generation going into the land, and here they are, and what's the first thing that they do is they send spies in again. I mean, honestly, if I'm Joshua, I'm not sending spies. Like, this didn't work out well last time. The only way I'm sending a spy is if it's myself and Caleb going back in. I'm not going to trust other people to come to the same conclusion. So why would he send spies? Well, we know from chapter 1, from the last time I was here, if you didn't see it, go back and watch it. God gave Joshua an instruction. He said, I want you to follow my word. I want you to follow my instructions. I'm going to tell you what to do. And he doesn't tell him to make it up on his own. He says, no, I want you to follow my word exactly. Don't veer to the left. Don't veer to the right. So then I understand that he has that instruction given to him. And then I get to chapter 2, and I see that he sends spies into the land. Well, my deduction then is that this was not Joshua deciding to send spies into the land on his own, but rather God told him, send spies into the land. I want you to send spies in to go to Jericho. Why would God send spies to Jericho? I mean, is he sending spies to Jericho to convince the people that they could defeat this city? Because, spoiler, you guys already know how this turns out, right? They're going to march around the city. The walls are going to fall down. I mean, it's not some sort of spectacular military strategy that they needed spies to lay out for them. God's going to destroy the city. He doesn't need spies to bolster the people. He doesn't need spies to, to find out what's going on. So why does God tell them to send spies into the city? I think God sent spies into the city for this purpose. It says it right here. Go view the land, especially Jericho. I want you to go into the city of Jericho. They went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. Did they just happen to come into Rahab's house? Was it by chance it was just the first place that they came across? Was it the only place that would let them in? Or 
did God send them to Jericho so that they would end up in Rahab's house? Verse 2 says, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I don't know where they, are, where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut up as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So we see the arrival of the spies, and they arrive at Rahab's house. They didn't end up there by accident. God's intention was for them to end up right where they were at, so that then they could have this conversation with Rahab. And it says in verse 8, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my mother, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So she makes this confession about Yahweh and this confession to the spies. And it's interesting that her confession, and we could call this a confession of faith, but her confession of faith is actually very, very similar to the same confession of faith that we make today. You know, people try and understand how did salvation work in the Old Testament versus how did salvation work in the New Testament. Well, Joshua 2 is going to show us that salvation works the same. There is no difference. Salvation in the Old Testament was still by faith in the salvation and the mercy provided by God in the promise of a Messiah. For us, it's the same thing. It's salvation by faith alone in God through the promised Messiah. We just know now that the promised Messiah was this guy named Jesus who dies on a cross, who is God incarnate. They didn't know that then. They knew the Messiah was in the future, but they knew that salvation 
was through him. So how does her confession look like ours? And we could split her confession up into three things. We could say that she makes a confession about the might or the power or the deeds of Yahweh. Then she makes a confession about the majesty of Yahweh, the position of Yahweh, and she'll close it out by pleading for the mercy of Yahweh, by asking for the salvation that Yahweh can provide. So let's look at this. In verse 10, she says, For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And so she makes this confession about the power, the the might, the authority of Yahweh, that we know about your God. And what's so fascinating to me is that here are the spies. They're in the promised land, which is run by all these pagan Gentile nations. They're in one of the fortified cities in a prostitute's house, and she knows the name of their God. She doesn't just say, oh, we've heard about you and and your God, whoever it is that you worship. She calls him by name. The notoriety of Israel was so wide at this point that they even knew the very name that had been given to God. And she calls him by his name. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. I know that your God, this God singular named Yahweh, is beyond any sort of power that we understand, that we know, that we can even imagine. She's looking back at events that had taken place 40 years before. I mean, I understand they didn't have the internet and everything, but whatever was going on in Old Testament Palestine internet People were hearing about Israel. They heard about what had happened to Egypt. They heard what had happened to Pharaoh, that you just destroyed his army, that he wiped out the the people that had enslaved you. And then as you came through the desert, you were still finding victory over other kings, over Sa'an and Og. You devoted them to destruction as this wandering group that has no land in the wilderness. I know about the story of your God named Yahweh. Forty years of history at minimum I know of him. And she makes that confession. And for us, it's the same thing. When you come to faith, you don't place your faith in some unknown person. Okay, I'll place my faith and be saved by somebody. You understand that it is God the Father who sent Jesus to die on a cross to bring you salvation. You understand all the stories in Scripture. Those are the things that help build that foundation that you understand the might, the power, the authority of God, which then you understand that He has the ability to do the promises, fulfill the promises that He makes in Scripture. And so you place your faith in Him. 
This was the foundation or the basis of her faith, like it's the foundation of our faith. People need to hear, they need to understand who God is. They can see a glimpse of Him within the world, within creation, but it's not enough. They need to hear about this God named Yahweh who sent His Son named Jesus to bring salvation. So then, Rahab makes another confession in verse 11. And she says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Understand, she is coming out of a society that worships multiple gods. They worship all sorts of gods, and, and they're not shameful. They'll mix in other gods. They'll bring in other gods and add them to their uh, pantheon of gods. You know, because if one god's good, then two is better. And the more you've got, I mean, it's like Pokemon of gods, right? How many can we collect? But that's not the confession that Rahab makes. Rahab says that we know that Yahweh, your God, that He is God. Singular, solely, by Himself, in the heavens above and on the earth below. We know that He is God, and it doesn't matter what realm we're in, that He has authority over the entire thing. That all these other gods that are being worshipped, that are being sacrificed to, if they're even alive, aren't even in the same category as Yahweh. I mean, this is the confession that she makes, is that this majesty of God, that He's above heaven and He's on the earth below. That there's nowhere that He doesn't touch, there's nowhere that He doesn't have authority, there's nowhere that He can't reach. Rahab understands, I don't care <clears throat> if I'm in the most protected city with the best walls, that if Yahweh wants to come in and He wants to destroy this city, that Yahweh will destroy this city. If Yahweh wants to allow me to live while He destroys this city, then Yahweh can help me to live while He destroys this city. She understands just from hearing the news about Yahweh, seeing the world, hearing about Him, His power. And she makes a confession to that. And so, she makes a confession then of mercy. She pleads for mercy. This God that is all-powerful, this God that is majestic beyond any others, can provide mercy. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Swear by your God, Yahweh, that he will provide me salvation, that he will not bring me, my family, to destruction. Save us. And the spies say, we will. You've dealt kindly with us. You've placed your faith in Yahweh, then you're going to be saved. 
And this is what our process of salvation looks like. We hear about God. We hear about the works that He's done. We hear about this Savior that He sent. We recognize that He has the authority to save, that He has the authority to remove your sins, that He has the authority to adopt you into His family. And so we place our faith then in that promise of salvation. It's the same thing that Rahab did. It's the same thing that we do today. So that brings us to the departure of the spies. It says in verse 15, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will, will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you will let us down. You shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and they remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, and they came down from the hills, and they passed over and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. <clears throat> so this brings us back to the question, what is the point of this passage and why did God send spies into the land? God sent spies into the land so that they would end up in Rahab's house so that they could have this conversation with Rahab so that Rahab could then make her confession about the might and the power of God, about the majesty of God, and about the forgiveness that God could provide for her. And so that then she and her family could be brought into the family of God which was Israel at that time. This is why God sent the spies. There's no other reason why he needed the spies to go. They didn't need them to be there for military strategy. They didn't need to, to be there to bolster their morale. They didn't need any of that. What God needed, what God wanted, what God desired was to bring salvation to Rahab, to remind Israel, Israel, you're not saved because you're born from Abraham. Israel, you're not saved because you're an Israelite. Israel, you're not saved because you've been circumcised, because you've followed all the sacrifices, because you've done everything that you are supposed to do. None of those things are what has brought you salvation. You were saved by placing your faith in Yahweh. And it's not restricted to you. That faith extends to the entire world. It goes to, to Rahab. If she places her faith, then she can be brought into 
the people of God. It was a reminder to Israel, don't lose sight of what God desires. Does God desire all your good works and all your sacrifices and all the other things that you can bring? Or does he desire faith in him and a trust in him? Even if it's a weak, troubled faith that's, that's broken, that's lying, that was coming from a prostitute, that was a Gentile, not even a part of our people, doesn't even fully understand the law of Yahweh, and she's throwing in with him and placing her faith in him and her future and her life in his hands. This is what salvation looked like, not just for Gentiles, but also for Israel. This is likewise what salvation looks like for us. It's not because you come to church every Sunday. It's not because you've done all sorts of good things. Those are not what bring you salvation. Salvation is through faith in Yahweh, in the faith in the Yahweh that brought Israel out of Egypt, that brought them through the desert, that brings them into the promised land and turns the promised land over to them, who ultimately is going to send his son, the promised Messiah from Genesis 3, to die on a cross to pay the price for Rahab's sins, for Joshua's sins, and for our sins. So God sends the spies so that he could provide that lesson to Israel. This is what salvation looks like, Israel. Don't forget the process of salvation. Don't misunderstand that salvation is only for the privileged people. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for who you were born or where you were born, but it's for the entire world. And likewise, it comes forward into history and tells us the same thing. The scripture, the authors of scripture are going to look back at Rahab. Matthew, they're going to see Rahab in this lineage, this genealogy that leads the Messiah. Not only does God bring this Gentile prostitute out of a city doomed, but he then places her in the genealogy of his son. She's intimately involved in that process of salvation. Not only that, but then they're going to look at what was it that saved Rahab. And they're going to say that Rahab was saved by her faith that was made evident by her good works. See, the good works didn't save her. You know, saving the spies, you know, everything else of her confession, it was the faith that she placed in God that brings her salvation, which then works itself out, is made evident, is revealed through the good works. So you see, you don't come to church to be saved. You come to church because you have been saved. Your heart has been changed. Now your will is aligned with God. I mean, look at Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute, right? Pagan, worshiping other gods in this other land. She makes this confession of faith, and she's brought into the nation of Israel, where she no longer works as a prostitute, but rather is then injected into the line of David, the line of Christ. And she starts following the rules and the law that God had laid down. Not because it brings her salvation, 
but because she has aligned herself with the will of Yahweh. She said, he's God above, he's God below, he's powerful over everything, that's who I want to be with. That's who I want to place my faith in. That's who I want to follow. And so then her desires become, the desire, become like the desires of Yahweh because this is who she's worshiping. This is who she's following. This is who she's listening to and praying to. Likewise, as Christians, we place our faith in Christ, which brings us salvation, which transforms our heart, which then drives us to do good works. Not because it brings us salvation, not because it makes us feel better, but because that's what God wants. And we said that we love him and that we'll place our faith in him. So why does God send spies into the land? He sends spies into the land so that he could provide evidence for Israel and for you sitting here today that I can save whoever I want. No one is beyond my reach. It doesn't matter if it's a prostitute in a foreign land. It doesn't matter if you are born in the most holy lineage of the people of God. I can save who I want, and I can save them from wherever, no matter what they've done. They're not beyond my reach. And this is what salvation looks like, that you're going to place your faith in me and your trust in me. Let me close in prayer.